and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Yet another hour of geeky news, views and reviews from Harrogate's independent comic store hiding under the stairs in the Everyman Cinema. Answer to a listener question. I can confirm that no, we do not in fact record in the shop because the Everyman is a perpetually noisy place and the recording would be a nightmare. I know because we've tried. So we are in fact recording in our high-tech recording studio facility here at Venusian Towers, somewhere in the heart of Harrogate. We are going to be a little bit review heavy today. I make no apology for that. There's a whole bunch of stuff to talk about. I regret that quite a lot of it's on Disney+, and I do try not to review things exclusively from one place. But what can I tell you? They keep going up with amazing stuff. We're going to start with something that I have been eagerly awaiting for some time, as regular listeners will know. And we're going to start by talking about She-Hulk, the first episode of which is available now. In fact, if you are listening to this on the day it drops, on the 25th of August 2022, the first episode of She-Hulk has been available for a week, and the second episode dropped today. I'm going to take the same approach with She-Hulk as I did with Moon Knight. I'm going to review each episode a week late, so that if you are worried about spoilers, you will have had an entire week to have watched the show. But just in case you are saving the whole thing up to binge in one go later, or you haven't got a Disney Plus yet and you're waiting to nip round a mate's house and or get a Disney Plus subscription when there's even more good stuff you want to see so you can just spend an entire month binging, here comes the spoiler horn. Spoilers! Spoilers! There you go, you have been warned. And I should say, spoilers from now until at least halfway through the show, not just for She-Hulk, but also for Sandman, because yes, sorry, I'm going to be talking about that again, and the new Predator movie, Prey, which we're definitely talking about in a minute. But first, She-Hulk. Hmm. It has attracted some opprobrium, I think it's fair to say, online, from people who don't like it because it is either too feminist too woke, or just plain bad. Now, let's take those criticisms in turn, shall we? Uh, too feminist. I I struggle with that one. I, I, I'm not quite sure what definition of feminist the people who think this show is too feminist are using. I think they can only be using the one that says that feminism is thinking that women are people too. Certainly nothing radical or hardline feminist about this show that I can discern. And I have, you know, cards on the table. I am a reasonably left wing, to be fair, yes, but very much middle-aged bloke. So, you know, it's not, I'm, I'm, I, I don't fit the profile for someone who's like a radical feminazi or whatever the term is that the haters like to use. So if I'm not seeing it, I think it might be because it's not there. So I'm going to, I'm going to laser in on the particular scene that a lot of the critics have focused on is the one where she's sitting down with Bruce and he tells her that it's all about how you control your anger and she explains to him that as a woman she has to control her anger all the time every time she gets mansplained to at work by somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about all the little microaggressions that women do face now apparently that's hardline feminist propaganda. Now, as I say, I am not a woman, but I have lived in the world for 50 years and I have met quite a lot of women. I'm married to one. And do you know what? I know that everything that she says in that scene is true. Women do have to put up with not being listened to, with being criticised for being rude when they behave in the same way that men are applauded for behaving, when they are belittled at work, when they are not taken seriously, when doctors don't believe how much pain they're in. People die because of that stuff. Some of the criticism has come from people who said, oh yeah, but, but Bruce has had a much harder life. So what? So what? That is not the point of that scene. And surely anyone with half a brain could see that. It actually makes me quite cross because this stuff in fiction should not be political at all. We should be able to look at that stuff and say, oh, look, there's a fairly 
mainstream and uncontroversial commentary on modern society, because that's what it is. And anyone who tells you that it's part of some kind of woke agenda, either a fool acting out of some kind of malignant agenda of their own, or utterly and completely detached from real life. It's bad because it's ultra-feminist. Utter, utter nonsense. Now, let's, in the same bound, deal with It's Too Woke, which is a criticism that is levelled at lots of things. It's, it's something I'm going to deal with when I talk about Prey as well. So let me just lay my cards down firmly on the table, shall we? I hate the word woke. I don't think it means anything useful in the way that it is currently used. And I think that it is mostly used now by people who don't like something because it challenges something that they don't want to be challenged on, or it makes them feel uncomfortable because it forces them to face something that they don't want to face, but is nevertheless true. And because they have no actual argument against it, they just dismiss it as woke. We're going to talk more about that when we talk about prey. But let's just say for now, as far as I'm concerned, if you criticise something by calling it woke, you already have lost the argument and there is no reason for me to listen to you. Now, if that seems harsh or elitist, it isn't. It's what I need to do for my own sanity, because I hear it so much in criticism of things that are not doing the things they're being criticised for. So a lot like dismissing people as just being Nazis. You go there and that's all you've got, then we can't talk. Let's take the third of the general criticisms, which is it's just bad. And I disagree. I mean, that's a perfectly valid opinion. You can not like it. Uh, I don't think it's awful, but I do have some criticisms. And I think anyone who thinks that the CGI is bad has a point. At least they have a point up to a point. It's not as good as the CGI that you would get in the Marvel movies. And that matters. Certainly for the first episode, we are dealing with two entirely CG characters, Hulk and She-Hulk. And when the CGI is as uncanny valley as this, it's not as bad as it was in the trailers, but it's still not amazing. And it, it... it did mean that I spent at least some of the time I was watching the show thinking, this CGI is not very good, is it? Rather than enjoying the show. Hopefully I will get over myself, because actually, if you compare this to the CGI you would have got on TV even 10 years ago, it's a significant improvement. So, you know, maybe we've been spoiled a bit, but yeah, it's not, it's not amazing. Everything else about it, I really kind of like. I mean, Mark Ruffalo as Bruce Banner, Stroke Hulk, of course he's great. It's Mark effing Ruffalo. The ever-fantastic Tatiana Maslany as Jennifer Walters, Stroke She-Hulk. Also, just brilliant. If you haven't seen her in anything before, that means you've had the misfortune to not see Orphan Black, which is still on Netflix, I believe, and you should go and watch, because it is amazing. If you... If you look at the cast photo for Orphan Black, it's basically Tatiana Maslany and about four other people, because Tatiana Maslany plays an entire family of clones in that show, and they are all completely different. She's good, is what I'm saying. And she really leans into this role. I get the feeling she enjoyed it. For one, quite like it, when the cast of a show appear to be having fun making it the story well they've changed she-hulk's origin slightly in the comics jennifer walters gets a blood transfusion from her cousin bruce even though she knows he has radioactive blood that will probably turn her into a hulk which always struck me as both lazy and stupid writing sorry stan lee but it sort of was it's not your best day dude not your best day good character though so you're forgiven Here they have Bruce and Jennifer get into a car accident where 
blood from their wounds mingles, which is gross, but actually, frankly, a bit more plausible. Then has to take it upon himself to train his cousin in the art of being a hawk. And again, in a sequence that has been much criticised by the haters of the show, Jennifer shows herself to be significantly better at quite a lot of things to do with being a hawk than Bruce is. And a lot of people have said, you know, that's nonsense, that's that's Mary Sueism. But actually, first of all, that's comics accurate as far as I remember. And also, she has already seen what Bruce has had to deal with. She's not coming into this blind, and she has a form of hawkism from the start that allows her to keep her intelligence. She doesn't devolve into a rage monster, which is one of the things that held Bruce back. So she's already been gifted, just by the nature of her superpower, a huge advantage that Bruce never had. So again, I I feel that that criticism just frankly misunderstands the nature of the character at its most basic level. And if you have a problem with that, your problem is not with the show, it's with the comics. So take it up with Stan Lee, basically. He created the character. He made that the thing. He he co-created the character. Now I come to think about it. So from there, she returns home and she goes back about her business as a lawyer uh, in her non-Hulk form initially. But then there is some super-powered activity in the courtroom and Jen has to Hulk out in order to deal with it. And it turns out to be really popular. So here we go. Now we know from the trailer that, you know, she's then going to head up the superhero law division at a particular law firm. And, you know, we'll get to that. I think if I've got any other criticism of this show, it's the way that Jen breaks the fourth wall. Now, again, that's comics accurate as far as I remember. But if you're going to do it, either do it or don't. I don't know. I, I think I really am nitpicking here. It's just it it didn't. It, it felt kind of half hearted. And given that there are people and they must have known there would be people looking for things to complain about and hello here I am just felt like they'd done it in a way that didn't feel natural now that has led to people who don't know what they're talking about saying that that's just ripping off Deadpool which it is not She-Hulk predates Deadpool by quite a long way and She-Hulk breaking the fourth wall predates Deadpool breaking the fourth wall by at least a decade so if anyone's ripping anybody off it's the other way around it's just that people who don't know anything about comics have only seen the films anyway I think I think they put a target on their back there, is, is what I thought. Now, maybe this will improve. We are only on it episode one. They haven't done a Netflix and dumped the whole thing in one go. Although, as we'll hear in a second, Netflix don't always do that either. Uh, I'm, I'm clearly reaching. Really just isn't a lot to criticise about this show. Anyway, we're going to leave it there. I will be reviewing more of She-Hulk as we get more. And in more depth, I don't, didn't really want to get into the story here because there's not a lot of story to get into. It's basically just setting up who Jen is and how come she turns green and big. Expect there's an awful lot of development is going to happen in the next two episodes. And speaking of the next two episodes, we're going to move on. I'm not going to do the jingle this week, but we are going to talk about Sandman a little bit. And I know, I know, I know what I said. I heard myself say it, but I can't not talk about Sandman because they did a thing. We thought there were 10 episodes in season one of Sandman, and there were. And then suddenly, an extra episode dropped. Now, they called it a two-parter. It's not, really. It's one episode with two stories in it. But what a pair of stories they've chosen. They've taken two issues of the comic that were complete stories in one issue and put them together into one show. Now, they've done this before. Actually, episode six, The Sound of Her Wings, was of two issues of Sandman. Issue 8, The Sound of Her Wings, which introduces death, and issue 13, which was called Men of Good Fortune and introduced the character of Hob Gadling. Now, what I didn't like about that episode of the show was that they didn't make a distinction and tell us they were doing two separate stories, and I actually felt, therefore, you could really see the join, and it felt a little bit cobbled together. I was prepared to forgive it because it was such an awesome episode with such great stories in it. But still, there was a thing there. Now, what they did 
with episode 11, the add-on episode, if you like, was they made it explicit. You actually got a little title card at the beginning that said, Dream of a Thousand Cats. And then when that story was over, you got another little title card that said, Calliope. And I, they pronounce them, I, I keep forgetting how they pronounce the word in the show. Different than the way I pronounce the name, but I've been, called, been pronouncing it Calliope for 30 odd years now. So I, I'm too old to change, basically. If I'm getting it wrong, I apologise to the entirety of Greece. I'm just going to point out that the, the spoiler horn has sounded. If you haven't seen this episode yet, I'm about to spoil the heck out of it. So, you know, go make a cup of tea or fast forward a bit if you don't want to be spoiled. Anyway, we started with The Dream of a Thousand Cats, which is one of my very favourite issues of Sandman. And it gave it a sort of animated feel, which I really liked. It was sort of rotoscoped. I'm sure they must have used real cats, but it, it, it looked a bit cartoony and animated, which was great. And it tells the story of a cat who walks the earth trying to convince other cats that cats should be in charge because humans are terrible. And once it was the cats who were in charge who could hunt humans. But then the humans dreamed and changed the world so that it had always been the way it is now. And the cat tells the story of how she went and found the cat of dreams. And the cat of dreams has told her that if just a thousand cats all dream a dream where they are in charge, once more, then that will too will come to pass. But as the grey cat tells the kitten at the end of the story, the idea that you could get a thousand cats to do the same thing at once is just impossible. Great little weird story that doesn't really fit in the wider narrative of Sandman, which was the beauty of Sandman in the first place. It was about dreams. You could do anything and you were bound by nothing. The second story, though, Calliope, is, again, another amazing standalone issue of Sandman, which they have changed in ways I'm going to talk about. story of Calliope and her encounter with a writer called Richard Maddock. Now, if you don't know your Greek mythology, Calliope is the youngest of the muses, the daughter of Zeus, and her purpose is to inspire great art. But... When we encounter her for the first time, she is in fact a prisoner, held prisoner by a wasted old writer who has abused and manipulated Calliope to his own ends to make his career great, but without her consent. And he gives, well, sells Calliope to Richard Maddock, who believes himself to be a different kind of man, a better man than that. And yet, there he is, buying a person. He is advised by the old writer who is beautifully and very creepily played by the great Derek Jacobi, that the tradition is you should woo a muse, but that he had always found it more effective to take what he wanted by force. Richard Maddock believes he's a better man than that. And yet, here he is, buying a person, taking her home, and locking her in a room in an attic until she does what he wants her to do. Now, that's not using physical force. I would argue that you're still using force in that scenario. And then we have a situation that sort of mirrors the situation between Morpheus and Roderick Burgess in episode one, in that Maddock, the writer, keeps telling Calliope that if she gives him what he wants, he will free her. And she says, I will not give you what you want, until I am free. And we get that stalemate. The difference here is that Roderick Burgess dies without getting what he wants, as pretty much does his son. Whereas Richard Maddock eventually decides that he's going to take the matter into his own hands and follow the old writer's advice and take what he wants by force. Now, here is a change. In the comic, and trigger warnings here for talking about sexual assault, in the comic, we have not a graphic depiction, but a very clear depiction of Richard Maddock raping Calliope and then being able to take her inspiration and go and write his novel. In the show, we get to see Richard Maddock sitting inspirationless at his keyboard 
And then he goes upstairs and knocks on Calliope's door. And we don't see anything of him again until he returns to his desk and starts frantically typing. Inspiration having been received. But across his cheek, there is a cut. So the suggestion of force is there. The idea that what he's taken was not given willingly. And there's no suggestion, there's no mention of any kind of sexual assault at all, except that it's there in the implication. But it's not graphic. It's a much more subtle way of doing it. It's perhaps a much kinder way of doing it to people who were watching it who may have issues around that. And I think it's actually a more effective narratively way of doing it too. And in her frustration and desperation and powerlessness, Calliope prays to the fates who come to her and basically say, sorry, love, unfortunately, you're bound according to law and there's nothing we can therefore do about it. No rules are being broken, which is a pretty powerful commentary on something. I'll leave you to decide what. Next, that she should call upon her husband for help, Aeneros. Lord of Dreams, and there's another name for the Sandman. She says that she doesn't think her former husband will help, but he comes anyway, and he asks her to let him help her. And I think that's important too. Morpheus is no white knight here. He has the power to do something, but he's not just going to come along and save her and leave her in his debt. He asks permission first. Do you want me to do this? And there is a limit to what he can do. She is, after all, bound according to the laws. But Morpheus is a great and terrible power and certainly not a man you want to annoy. So he tells Richard Maddock that he will give him exactly what he wants from Calliope. He tells him that if it's ideas you want, then he shall have ideas in abundance. And then we cut to him giving his lecture about creative writing. And somebody asks him where his ideas come from. It's not quite phrased like that, but that's basically the question. And he starts just pouring ideas out of his head and he cannot stop. And we then see him in a stairwell and he's writing the ideas that are coming to his head on the wall in blood. And he cannot stop. And he gives his student his house keys and says, Go to my house. You will find a woman there. Let her go. Tell her I said she's free because he understands that that's the only thing he's going to do to make Morpheus stop doing this to him. And so the student goes to his house and finds the room empty. All that remains is a copy of a book called Along Came a Candle, which is a book that the old writer had asked Richard Maddock to try and get back into print which is something that Richard Maddock had not done because he's a self-centred, nasty little man. And that just underlines that a little bit. And then, then we have the denouement of the story where Calliope, now she's free, asks Dream to let Richard Maddock go, to not continue to torture him because vengeance does no good. And then she just leaves, a free woman. And again, I really like that. I like that the story is about freedom and recovering that freedom. It's not about taking vengeance on the people who've taken that freedom from you. I make no comment about whether Richard Maddock deserved to suffer eternal torment or not. It's not up to me. It's up to Calliope. And she says no. So that's fine by me. And it's just such a wonderful, wonderful encore to the show. I'm not going to talk about Sandman anymore, I promise, just to say that Sandman season two is not yet officially greenlit. It's an expensive show to make and Netflix is struggling a little bit. They've been known to cancel things that have been very successful without very much notice. And they are looking at the figures. Now, it is actually, Sandman is the number one streaming show around the world right now. If you haven't watched it yet and you have even the slightest interest in doing so, I would urge you to do it soon because the bean counters at Netflix 
are looking at the numbers and they need to see big numbers to give Neil Gaiman and his crew the green light to do this again. And believe me, if you don't know the comics, that is so much good stuff still to come. You can make it happen. All you got to do is watch a TV show. So watch it. And with that, we will jet away from Netflix and on to Disney Plus. Because we need to talk, ladies and gentlemen, about Prey. Before we do, my bona fides. I was a teenager when the first Predator movie came out. And I loved it. I loved the whole vibe. I loved the jungle thing. I loved the, the fact that you didn't see the monster until very near the end. I loved the monster design. I thought Arnie's performance was brilliantly cheesy. I didn't even mind the fact that apparently covering yourself in mud cancels out heat vision or something. It was fabulous. I was in, well, just starting university when Predator 2 came out. And I loved it. I loved the opening. In fact, the opening shot of Predator, Predator 2 remains, for me, one of the best openings of any movie ever because you're expecting a jungle and you get the same music, the sort of marimba thing from Predator, the first Predator, and the camera is flying in over a, a densely palm tree forested kind of place and you think you're in the jungle again and then... The camera moves a little bit further and you're suddenly looking at Los Angeles and we go from actual jungle to concrete jungle. And it's such a good image. It's such a good reference. It, ah, I could talk for a long time about the opening sequence of Predator 2. I won't because we don't have an awful lot of time. I love Predator is what I'm saying. The later Predator movies, not so much because let's be honest, they were mostly flipping awful. But the Predator comics have always been amazing. And the Predator comics have pitted the Predators against all kinds of threats and challenges, human and non-human, throughout time. In fact, one of my very favourite Predator stories is the comic Bloody Sands of Time, which is set in the First World War, and it's glorious. Anyway, be it known, I'm easy for Predator. Give me a Predator and a decent script, and I will watch your movie. And you know what Prey did? It gave me a Predator and a decent script. Plot-wise, actually, it's very similar to the first film. What you have is a group of Native Americans, and they are aware that there is something in the forest. Most of the warriors think it's a bear. One young female hunter is not so sure, and she sees various things that make her realise they're dealing with something that definitely is not ursine in nature. And you have the various interplays between people not believing the monster is real, so and so and so. And you get a sequence where the hunters finally face the predator, but also another threat. In the original Predator, it's a narco camp kind of deal. In Prey, it's a group of French fur trappers. And there is a fight in which everybody can is fighting and everybody else has a lot of confusion. The Predator is injured, it runs away. Then, there is a little bit more stuff, and there is another fight in which almost everyone from the team of hunters is killed. This happens in the original Predator, as Arnie's team is slowly whittled down. It happens here, as the Native American warriors are slowly taken out, until we're just left with one central character. In the original Predator, it's Dutch, as played by Arnie. In Prey, it's Naru, as portrayed by the brilliant Amber Midthunder. Arnie does in Predator, Naru faces down the already injured beast, uses the skills that she has learned, and which we have seen her learn and hone and perfect, to take it out. And she returns home to her Comanche encampment, victorious, with the head of the vanquished predator. Now, why am I telling you all of that? Well, first of all, because I've blown the spoiler horn and I can, but also I wanted to draw the clear parallels between this narrative and the narrative of the original predator, because for some reason, 
all of those rage nerds on the internet who adore Arnie in Predator find it completely inconceivable that Naru could have done the same thing. Well, it's not unrealistic if another character has done it. You know, if you like the unrealism of the original Predator, you can't criticise Prey for doing the same thing for being unrealistic. That's inconsistent and, you know, demonstrates you don't really have an argument. have any plot or story issues with this movie at all. The only question, really, is, is this movie actually any good? And I'm very pleased to tell you that the answer, very much, is yes. My word, if you haven't seen it, and you have even the slightest inkling of liking the Predator franchise, or just sci-fi movies in general, or just movies in general, and you've got Disney+, Plus, give this a watch, because it really does reward your time. First of all, it looks amazing. It is so, so beautifully shot. It really takes advantage of the wide open plains and the forests that this story is set within. It's just visually an absolute feast. Full marks for the director, Dan Trachtenberg, and the cinematographer, especially the cinematographer, Jim Cutter. It is just a visually stunning thing. If everything else about it was bad, and it isn't, but if everything else about it was bad, you could just watch it with the sound off for the sheer visual feast of it all. Then we come to the performances, all of which are, again, just brilliant. As a great cast of Native American actors, first of all. Uh, they're playing, I don't, th- I, I don't think for a second that they were all Comanche, but they're playing Comanche. And at least they're not using non-Native American actors in makeup, because that would be the worst of the worst of the worst. The performances, particularly of the Native American actors, bring a quiet dignity to the film, which enhances the quiet dignity of the cinematography. This is not an in-your-face action movie in the way that Predator 1 and 2 are. This is a much calmer, more art house kind of vibe on the psychotic alien stab monster. Don't get me wrong, the violence when it comes, the action when it comes, is fast and hard and brutal and, again, beautifully portrayed. But as a film, there is a serenity to Prey, which I, again, really appreciated. It's nice to have an action movie that takes time to look around and appreciate the beauty. It's a strange juxtaposition, but it works. I even, to be honest, liked the new design of the Predator. I thought it was unnecessary, and I actually still prefer the original design, but why would all the Predators wear the same gear? Why wouldn't there be different, for want of a better word, brands of equipment that they take on their hunting trips? So, you know, fine, as long as it looks good, and it did. It's all the basic stuff, you know, the the in-your-face top story, the performances, the, the direction, the effects, all of that is brilliant. And then you get to the subtext of the whole thing, and it's even better. Very clear in this film who the bad guys are, and the bad guy is not just the Predator. If anything... The Predator is more in tune with the Native Americans than the French fur trappers. At several points, Nero's disdain for the metal traps that the fur trappers are putting out. We see her lack of understanding of why these strangers in her land are despoiling it in quite this way. Why they have so little respect for the land that they're walking on because the bad guy really in this is clearly colonialism the idea that you can go to somebody else's place and just take what you want that's what the predator's doing it's what the french are doing and in both cases no makes them suffer for it and it's it's a nice little subtext i think it's timely i think we need that kind of thing in our narrative. And I think it's something that the audience for Prey, who are likely to be 
in Europe and North America or to think about this kind of thing. Because, you know, America is built on the bones of the Native Americans. It just is. And there's no way around that. Maybe we should start to face it a little bit. Maybe we should start to consider that a little bit. Necessarily need it shoving down our throats in our entertainment, but this doesn't do that. This isn't a preachy film. That subtext is subtext. It's not foretext. So I may be dropping the boring preachy part into this review, but the film is in no way boring or preachy. The message is there, though, and it's one that we should see. That said, for a film that tries to respect Native American culture as much as this one appears to be doing, it does strike me as odd that they've got the wrong tribe. I am nitpicking now. Well, actually, am I? Am I nitpicking? If this was a story set in Europe and they'd got, you know, sort of Italians in Scotland, would I be as forgiving of this? I don't know. But it's supposed to be set in the Northern Great Plains, and that's not where the Comanche were. So these Native American people should not be Comanche. They're in the wrong place if they are. The Comanche were in kind of the southwest sort of Texas kind of places. So, you know, that's wrong. And honestly, that's quite a big thing to get wrong. For a, for a story that is trying to pay this much attention to getting Native American culture right, to be in the wrong part of the country with the wrong tribe is odd. And there's me using the word tribe when I shouldn't. I should be using the word nation. The Comanche are not a tribe. They're a nation. Go watch it. It's brilliant. Honestly, that's the only review you need. It is fabulous. Just one other thing about Prey before we move on properly. If you want to hear a really interesting review from people who absolutely loved this movie, I would recommend the podcast The Tongue Unbroken, which has done a review of Prey, although that's not what it normally does. The Tongue Unbroken is a podcast about Native American languages, and they review Prey with reference to their use of Comanche, and also with reference to the film's treatment of Native American culture. And honestly, they give it two thumbs up, if that's a thing that a, that a Native American would do. But anyway, if they were if they were European, they give it two thumbs up. It is a really interesting piece of the film from a completely different direction. I would also actually, um, I'd recommend The Tongue Unbroken as a podcast anyway. Um, it's not geeky as such, except you could be geeky about anything. And I am actually a total languages geek. I'm a monoglot. I don't speak any languages other than English, but I am fascinated by language. Uh, and half my degree was in linguistics. So, you know, I, so if you're interested in language and how language works, and how language and culture are kind of inseparable from each other, The Tongue Unbroken will really feed that bit of your geekiness. It really will. It's a great, great show. Anyway, enough of that. Moving on. And since we've been talking about giant space aliens, it's time to think about what is actually going on in the non-fictional space. So, space, the final frontier. And a frontier that we are that little bit closer to getting back to. Because, I'm sorry, I've reached a point where low Earth orbit doesn't count. So, Artemis 1, as you are listening to this, if you are listening to it around about the time it drops on the 20th of August, Artemis 1 is days away from launch, unless something's gone wrong between me recording this and you hearing it. The Space Launch System is sitting on the pad right now, as it was last week, been there a while. Nothing's gone wrong yet. Everything is prepped and ready to go. Launch is scheduled for August the 29th. It may not go then. There may be a problem. But if it doesn't go then, it will go soon. There are any number of launch windows for this mission, so if it doesn't go on August the 29th, it'll go early September, probably. Unless that's a catastrophic failure and it suddenly becomes a crater on the Florida coast. We hope that doesn't happen. I'm not going to go into any more about Artemis 1. I talked about it a long time last week. And uh, I'm going to leave it until next week before I do a big thing about Artemis 1. Because there's bound to be developments and stuff. Uh, but what else is happening in space? 
Well, it's funny you should ask. There is a bit of jiggery-pokery going on with the Russians and the International Space Station again. Uh, Essentially, it all falls under the category of big talk, I think. There is a new director of Roscosmos, space agency. Uh, It was previously helmed uh, by um, Dmitry Rogozin, uh, who himself has been fairly vocal about stuff. Um, but he has now been replaced by Yuri Borisov, who was deputy prime minister of Russia. And you now they clearly want a heavy hitter in here. Now, what he said is that Russia will definitely, definitely be pulling out of the International Space Station after 2024. Now, that sounds dramatic. They actually probably couldn't pull out any faster than that. On the face of it, given that NASA is rather vocally making plans to keep the ISS going until 2030, and they can't operate it without the Russians, they just can't, that isn't possible. Not at the moment, at least. It would take some fairly big adjustments. That sounds like quite a big flex. It's actually not. I would point out to you that um, they've not said they're pulling out in 2024. They said they're pulling out after 2024. Well, 2030 is after 2024. So I think the Russians will be there until the bitter end. I don't think they can afford not to be. I think they need the the position. It's a major prestige thing for Russia to be a big player in space. And without the ISS, they currently would not be. And I don't think that would play well with the Russian populace. And if Putin needs anything right now, it's to have the population on board. So my prediction is that there will be Russian involvement in the ISS right up until the end. Whether they'll have astronauts up there, cosmonauts, sorry, up there, um, I'm not sure. I think probably because why would you be involved in the ISS if you couldn't have the prestige of having people in actual space? There's also you know, quite a lot of important science and stuff that they can do up there. So there's a real advantage to that. After that, well, after that, we're moving on, I think, in space. The ISS is Knocking on for 30 now, which is very old for a piece of kit to have been in space constantly. I think it might now hold the record. I think it's been up there longer than Mir was. So it's becoming increasingly costly to keep it there and increasingly costly to adapt it. So what will happen eventually is that the whole kit and caboodle will be, well, the NASA term for it is deorbited. What they actually mean is they'll crash it. This is a huge shame, but it is also an inevitability. You can't keep the thing in orbit forever. It will not stay up on its own. It needs constant um, thrusting to keep it up because it's in low Earth orbit where there is enough atmosphere to slow it down enough to bring it down eventually if it's not maintained. So once it's abandoned, it's going to come down. There's no way to bring it down in one piece, which would be my preference. If there was a way to, to take it apart, bring the bits down and reassemble them somewhere in a museum or several museums, that would be my favourite thing. They can't do that. There's no way of doing that. We don't have anything capable of doing that. If we still had the shuttle, in theory, that would have been a possibility, but they still wouldn't have done it because the cost would have been prohibitive. I suppose, actually, it needn't have been. They could have coupled it with the shuttle taking something up and then bringing a piece of the ISS back down on its way home. That might have worked. But anyway, we don't have shuttles, so we can't do that. There's nothing else big enough. We can't have things put inside ships anymore. They're just not big enough to do that. So they will crash it into the sea, uh, specifically into a part of the Pacific Ocean called Point Nemo. Real place. Uh, That is the point in the Pacific which is furthest away from any land as you can possibly be. Uh, There's already a bunch of stuff down there. The uh, Soviet Mir space station is down there already. Any number. I think it's something like 450 spacecraft that have been deliberately deorbited into that part of the ocean. Before you get all sad and probably cross about the shocking waste of that, don't worry. Bits of the ISS will be saved. There are commercial companies already working on putting their own 
spacecraft into low Earth orbit, their own private space stations. And they're going to start by using some of the modular bits of the ISS to bolt their own stuff onto. So bits of the ISS will survive at least for a while. Eventually, everything has to be taken apart and dumped because it becomes too difficult to maintain. But there are some bits of the space station that are actually relatively new when they're compared to the, the core section. The story isn't over in 2030. Bits of it will live on after that. What we will have then, though, I think, is a very interesting scenario. There will be several, if everything goes according to plan, at least, several privately owned and privately operated space stations in low Earth orbit, which, in theory at least, people would be able to go and visit just by buying a ticket on a privately owned and operated spacecraft. Uh, SpaceX already are doing that for NASA. They're taking people up to the ISS already. Other space companies are very close to having that capability too. And at that point, I guess, low Earth orbit becomes what air travel was about 100 years ago. Really expensive, unaffordable to most people, but something that governments don't really trouble themselves with anymore. Because by that point, again, this is kind of dependent on Artemis 1 working, but by 2030, if Artemis 1 works, we will have the Gateway Station in orbit around the moon. And NASA and the big national space agencies will probably be much more focused on operating in what we're still pleased to call deep space. I'm not sure I count the moon as deep space, but it's a long way beyond low Earth orbit, at least. Even by then have missions where astronauts who, working for a space agency or for a, com a company fly up to one of the low Earth orbit privately operated stations and from there catch some kind of transport craft that takes them to the gateway station and from there either conduct whatever science or, or manufacturing thing they want to do in lunar orbit or from the gateway station they then go down to the surface of the moon and whatever kind of moon base we've developed by then. Which would make lunar orbit and the lunar surface pretty much what low Earth orbit was 25 years ago. And that's really exciting. That's actual progress. I am so excited for this. I regret very much that we've waited this long. We could have been here 25 years ago, if we'd kept the momentum going from Apollo. We didn't. And that's on all of us. And it's not just on NASA and not just on America. There's no rule that says America has to, to have led all of that and that once America wasn't doing it, nobody else could. The, point, the fact is, once America wasn't doing that anymore, nobody else did either. So it's on all of us, I think, is a case where it's better to have arrived late than not to have arrived at all. If, if... We can make the moon as routine as low Earth orbit has become now. Then the next logical step is Mars. And that is very exciting indeed. Perhaps even Venus. I mean, we couldn't have people on the ground on Venus, but we could put people in orbit around Venus. And that might be interesting. So I think what I'm saying is the future is looking very bright for space travel at the moment. All we've got to do is make sure we don't get ourselves killed before it happens. For more information on Artemis and the Moon Project, watch this space. I'm working on a two-part episode uh, all about Artemis and the science of moon exploration, which should be ready in a couple of weeks. Now, as the nights draw in, it's time to bring back the astronomy section and tell you what it is that you can see in the evening sky if you look up this week. And if you do that, what you want to do is you want to look towards the east and fairly early in the evening, you will spot a yellowish dot rising above the horizon. That is Saturn. And about the mid evening, uh, then you will start to get a brighter spot. It'll look white, probably to the naked eye. Uh, that is Jupiter again in the east. And then finally, quite late on, middle of the night, midnight ish, probably. Then you will see the reddish dot of Mars. 
also becoming visible. Venus is around, but still low in the pre-dawn east. So, you know, not joining the planet party in the evening just yet. All of those planets are available to the naked eye. You don't need any kind of magnification. But if you can look at them through a decent pair of binoculars or a halfway decent telescope, you will see beauty the likes of which you could not have imagined. There is very little more worth looking at, to my way of thinking, than the planets when you can actually see them. Look like planets, look like pictures you've seen in books. It's a powerful thing, and I really do encourage you to give it a go. And as time's winged chariot draws ever nearer, we will lose space there for this week. Okay, so let's move on to something a little bit different. We've talked a lot over the last few weeks about TV and movies and comics, and it's really important to remember that there is more to geekery than just that. We are not just about stuff on screens and things with pictures. So I'm going to recommend a couple of books, and not new ones either. Now, my first recommendation is... A series that I've talked about on here before, and I think I've recommended the podcast version, and that is the Galactic Football League series by Scott Sigler. And uh, Scott Sigler has an excellent podcast, which for the last oh, well over a decade now has been putting out every Sunday free audiobook content written by him. It started as a, a reaction to him getting a publishing deal for his first novel and then seeing the publisher go bust just before his first novel came out. He, he got the manuscript back. He didn't want to go through like all the schlepping it round publishers again. So he just read it out loud and put it out in a podcast so that people would hear his work. Uh, and his career took off from there, really. Now, the Galactic Football League series is a sports series. Uh, it's, it's aimed at young adults, but I'm 50 and I love it. So I suggest it's suitable for pretty much anyone. And it tells the story of Quentin Barnes. Now, Quentin Barnes plays American football. Don't worry, I know nothing about American football. Does not interfere with my enjoyment of this series at all. He plays American football in the future, a future where the galaxy has mostly been subjugated by a race of aliens called the Kretorakians. And what the Kretorakians want is to keep order and to force the other alien species in the galaxy to cooperate and work together. One of the ways they do that is through sport. American football is chosen as one of the sports they do this with because the different positions are perfect for different species. It's quite a clever conceit. I really like it. What we have is the story of Quentin Barnes, uh, a young human from the purest nation, which is a deeply racist, deeply religious society, which bans aliens from all of its worlds. So very poor and impoverished and very draconian. The laws are very strict and the punishment is usually death. Quentin is big and good at playing quarterback, which is the central position in any American football team. I know this because I've read the book. Football is his way out. He's selected to play for the Ironath Krakens, who are a major league team. They're not in the top tier at the start of the series, but they are the major leagues. And so he becomes a young rookie on that team. And then the series follows him as his career progresses, as he has to learn the various cultural lessons he needs to learn about cooperation and tolerance and understanding. And he has to unlearn his prejudices and the hatreds he's been taught. Sigler's world building is absolutely sublime in this series. He presents a far future society made up of humans and very alien aliens. Sigler is very good at not doing the Star Trek thing of making all aliens basically humans with bumps on their noses. Sigler's aliens are very alien, not just in the way they look, but in the way they behave, the way their cultures operate. It's very carefully thought through. And against all of that, there's also some major galactic action war-y type stuff going on. I don't want to say too much. I don't want to spoiler any of it. There are currently, I'm looking at them, so I'm counting six books in the series. Well, the sixth book is just due soon. 
it's probably going to be seven or eight, I think, in the end. They are just really cleverly put together, really well written. Sigler's description of action is astoundingly good. Just a brilliantly fun series to rip your way through. I would recommend it to anybody, but particularly to kids who maybe aren't all that interested in reading. Much harder read is also my favourite book by any living author, and that is The Sparrow by Mary Daria Russell. Uh, it does have a sequel, Children of God, which I recommend you read because it'll make you feel better about the utterly traumatic ending of The Sparrow. First contact story. A radio astronomer at an observatory picks up a signal from an alien world orbiting another sun, and it's definitely singing. And that's proof that there is alien intelligence out there. The story breaks, the world goes crazy for it, and the world start trying to work out how to respond and whether they should send a team of people or whatever they should do. Meanwhile, the Catholic Church just goes, well, there are some souls to save for God, puts together incredibly quickly a team of qualified people to go and investigate. And everything goes wrong from there. It's a brilliant, brilliant novel about colonisation and hubris and how things can go wrong, even if everybody is acting in good faith, because nobody sets out to be the bad guy in this story. But somehow, by the end, everybody is. It's a tale about tragedy and loss and how the worst things can be done with the best of intentions, particularly when you just don't understand. It's about clash of cultures again. And it's beautifully told. You will feel for all of the characters. They are hugely engaging as a cast of characters. and the misunderstandings between them are really the cause of the tragedy that befalls the mission. The science is top notch. You could actually send people to another planet using this technology that's described. I think the technology pretty much exists or would be, would be conceivably developable, is that a word, in a fairly short amount of time. So proper geeky read. I urge you to check them out. Please check with your independent bookseller who in Harrogate is imagined things uh, at the bottom of Montpellier Hill. If you're outside Harrogate, you will have an independent bookseller near you. You absolutely will. Please find them. Please support them. Okay, not much else to add. Nothing for the Geek Community Notice Board this week, except to say, if you're listening to this on Thursday, the 25th of August, when it first goes out in Harrogate Community Radio, you are missing Geek Movie Quiz Night over at the Everyman Cinema, run by the people who run the Geek Pub Quiz for this month but it is the third thursday of every month so mark september's in your calendars now show notes are available as ever over at www.destinationvenus.co.uk just click the blog little thing at the top of the homepage, and search for this episode which is 64 of geeking with destination venus you have any comments or suggestions about things you have heard or would like to hear on the show or if you are doing some kind of geeky event that you would like to get onto the Geek Community Notices, or if you are doing a geeky thing that you would like to come on the, the show and promote, or anything else that moves you to want to get in touch, info at destinationvenus.co.uk. Just email us and, um, you know, maybe if I don't get back to you straight away, email me again. I am a little bit disorganised. Uh, or you can reach us through the Destination Venus social medias. Uh, we are on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Uh, we're not on TikTok because I'm 50. We will be back next week with a review of the second episode of She-Hulk, an update on Artemis 1, and news about anything else that's geeky that's happening that I can squeeze in. We will also have a wonderful woman of science next week. Apologies that there isn't one this week, but there wasn't time. And as previously discussed, I do not want to just rush through those segments i want to give people proper recognition and a proper amount of time quick shout out to anyone listening on the 25th of august who got their gcse results today i hope they were the results you wanted please understand that they're not it's almost certainly not your fault there are always things you can do about it so don't panic that is it for us this week we'll see you soon until we do be kind to yourself be kind to everybody else. Stay safe, and above all else, stay geeky.